and welcome to the What The Heck podcast, a show that looks at mysteries and the unexplained. I'm your host, Glenn. Every week I look at something unexplained, telling a story or describing it, then look at the theory surrounding it. I won't give you any answers because I don't know them myself. I'll just give you what you need to decide for yourself. Research is done as academically as possible and references will be given after the stories. The episode this week is a true crime episode. This week, we're off to Chicago to look at a situation that caused painkillers to be packaged differently. We're looking at the Chicago Tylenol murders. On September 29th, 1982, Chicago was rocked by something they never thought could happen. It changed the face of over-the-counter pharmaceuticals across the country. That morning, Mary Kellerman had woken up with a sore throat and a runny nose. As a 12-year-old, she explained these symptoms to her parents. They gave her a single extra-strength Tylenol capsule. Tylenol is mostly paracetamol. It's used as an over-the-counter pain relief and to reduce fever. There's no aspirin in the capsules, which is what it was advertised as originally in 1959. Initially, Tylenol was marketed for children, eventually becoming one of the most common painkillers in the United States. The morning of September 29th. The morning of September 29th, when Mary Kellerman took her extra strength capsule to relieve her sore throat and runny nose, the Tylenol wasn't only the formula for Tylenol. Dennis Kellerman, Mary's father, heard her go into the bathroom before hearing a loud thud from inside. He called out to Mary twice to ask if she was okay, but she didn't answer. He opened the bathroom door and discovered that the source of the sound was Mary. She was unconscious on the bathroom floor. Dennis called the paramedics, who arrived at the scene quickly to help Mary. They tried everything they could, but she didn't seem to get any better. They took her to the Alexian Brothers Medical Centre in Elk Grove Village, where she was pronounced dead at 9.56am. The chief medical examiner for Cook County was notified of the death, but they didn't think anything was suspicious about the death. Regardless, Mary was taken into the medical examiner's office for an autopsy because she was so young and because of the mysterious circumstance of her death. The medical examiner's office conducted a phone interview with Dennis, then notified the police, who visited Dennis to corroborate his story. In the report from the paramedics, the medications that Mary had taken revealed that she had only taken the Tylenol that morning. Nobody thought anything was strange about that, since it was such a common painkiller and the Tylenol was overlooked. That same morning, Adam Janus from Arlington had called in sick from work. He felt like he was getting a cold and decided to stay home that day. He picked up his children from preschool, then stopped off to get some Tylenol to relieve his symptoms. When they got home, the family had some lunch and Adam took two Tylenol. He went to take a nap, but returned to the kitchen a few moments later and collapsed. 
By 3.15pm, Thomas Kim, the medical director of Northwest Community Hospital's intensive care unit, said that Adam Janus had been pronounced dead from a cardiac death. He explained that the first job was to resuscitate Adam, but his heart wouldn't restart. After being told by Thomas Kim about the death of Adam, his wife Teresa and Adam's parents, along with other people who knew Adam, chose to go back to Adam's house in Arlington Heights instead of returning to their own homes. While that was happening, Mary Lynn Rayner wasn't feeling very well. She had recently had her fourth child and took some Tylenol at her home in Winfield. After taking the painkillers, she collapsed. Her husband, Ed, came home soon after she did and phoned an ambulance. She was rushed to Central DuPage Hospital. At Adam's house, the people who had assembled to plan his funeral were all mourning. Adam's younger brother, Stanley, was suffering from chronic back pain. He asked his wife, also called Teresa, to get him some Tylenol. Because nobody had thought to check the Tylenol, it had not been removed from the house. Teresa returned with the Tylenol, and both she and Stanley took some. Both of them fell unconscious. Paramedics, who are part of the Arlington Heights Fire Department, arrived to the Janus household once more to attempt to help Stanley and Teresa. Eight men came to help the pair and worked to help them in groups of four. Everything that was happening to Stanley would eventually happen to Teresa just a few moments later, suggesting that they were suffering from the same problem. The paramedics called the hospital to tell them that they were bringing back the Janus family. The hospital assumed it was Adam's parents and was surprised to hear that it was his brother instead. They had been speaking to him earlier in the day and he seemed to be in perfect health. They also called one of the nurses from the hospital to explain. There had been two deaths already that day and now two more were exhibiting the same symptoms. They didn't know about Lynn Rayner at this point. An investigator arrived at the hospital and spoke to the doctor in charge of the situation. He asked what was happening, but nobody actually knew because they didn't have any information. The investigator decided to go to the Janus house and see if he could find what was causing the symptoms. Over in Lombard, Mary McFarland told co-workers in her Illinois Bell store that she had her headache. She went into the back room of the store and took some Tylenol. Within minutes of returning, she collapsed. Nobody knew what was happening. At 8pm, one of the nurses from the hospital, Nurse Jensen, the investigator and the police all arrived at the Janus house. Upon entering, they couldn't see anything immediately threatening. Jensen went into the bathroom to see if she could find anything odd, but all she found was over-the-counter and prescription medications. The investigator went into the basement to see if there was anything down there. He found some metalwork and knew that they sometimes use cyanide to polish metalwork and wanted to make sure that they hadn't been in contact with any of it. Jensen then found the Tylenol. Six capsules were missing from the bottle that Adam had purchased earlier that day, 
and three people were either dead or in intensive care after taking some in the house. The bottle still had the cotton ball in the top to protect the capsules. They returned to the hospital and took the Tylenol with them. On the way, Stanley Janus was pronounced dead. At around 9.30pm, Paula Prince purchased some Tylenol from a Walgreens on North Wells Street. Meanwhile, the doctor in charge of the situation at the hospital had settled on one answer, cyanide. He just couldn't figure out where the exposure had come from. He took some blood to try and test it for cyanide and sent the samples off to be analysed. Half an hour later, the investigator and the police were trying to establish and preserve a chain of evidence for the day. Nurse Jensen told them it was the Tylenol. Nobody believed her. The Tylenol from the Kellerman house had been taken to the police department in Elk Grove Village and it was brought to the hospital. Once both the bottles were at the hospital, the investigator looked them over. They had the same control number. The investigator called the medical examiner, who told him to open the bottles and smell them. The investigator opened one bottle and nothing seemed out of the ordinary, so he pulled the capsules out. They seemed normal, but he noted the smell of almonds. When he opened the second bottle, he noticed the smell again. He was smelling cyanide. Around 50% of people can smell it, so they were lucky that the investigator could smell the almond scent of the cyanide. Cyanide is a chemical asphyxiant, which blocks the utilisation of oxygen by red blood cells, causing asphyxiation. It can also cause brain damage and cardiac arrest, and all happens very quickly. At 1am on September 30th, the doctor got his lab results. They confirmed what the investigator had discovered. The blood samples showed a large amount of cyanide, at least a hundred times more than necessary to kill a person. At 3.15am, Mary McFarland was pronounced dead at Good Samaritan Hospital in Downers Grove. Six hours later, Lynn Rayner was also pronounced dead at the Central DuPage Hospital in Winfield. The Winfield police had no idea what had happened to her. Around 10am, an attorney from Johnson & Johnson, the owners of the company that make Tylenol, arrived at the medical examiner's office. He was taken up to the lab where a toxicologist explained what had been found. The attorney was in the office for around an hour and a half before leaving. He could see that once the cyanide had been found, there was no way the information could be kept under wraps. It turned out that the attorney had arrived due to a phone call between the CEO and the medical examiner's office and the CEO of the company that makes Tylenol. He was informed that a press conference would take place and was asked to hold on until the attorney had come in. The press conference happened at 10 a.m and told the people in the area about the discovery of the silent cyanide in the Tylenol. People were told not to take it. It wasn't recalled, but the people needed to be told. 
Nurse Jensen called the police and asked them to remove Tylenol from the shelves. The police said that they couldn't do that until the deputy chief told them to do it. At 3pm, Johnson and Johnson recalled the entire lot number of Tylenol. The press conference had rightfully worried people. The medical examiner spent the rest of the day in phone calls from concerned members of the public, worried because they'd taken Tylenol. At 8pm, the Attorney General for Illinois, Tyrone Farner, received a phone call. One of his deputies told him about the poisonings. When he asked why he'd been called and not the state attorney, he was told that there were multiple cases in multiple hospitals. The director of the Illinois Department of Law Enforcement also received a call to inform him as well. The director thought the deaths were unusual and said that poisonings weren't common. On October 1st, Attorney General Farner pulled together the state police, local police, chiefs of police and the director of the Illinois State Police. He even called in federal help because he was unsure of how large the situation was. They agreed to look into the Tylenol mystery and find out if they could see any suspects. That afternoon, Teresa Janis, Stanley's wife, was pronounced dead and taken off life support. Later on, around 5pm, the police found the body of Paula Prince in her apartment in Old Town. She had purchased the Tylenol on September 29th and was only found because she was meant to have met her sister for dinner and hadn't been in contact. She was also due to work on a flight that morning and hasn't shown up. Inside Paula's apartment, the bottle of Tylenol was sat, open, on the vanity table. She had taken it in the bathroom, and by the time she got to the door, she was either dead or unconscious. Without medical attention, there was no way she could have survived. That night, the mayor of Chicago was called. She was informed that the Tylenol deaths had reached Chicago. The mayor herself called the office and began to formulate a plan. The medical examiner was called once more to investigate the death of Paula Prince. The mayor was about to hold a press conference to tell everyone that Paula had been found. The press conference would have involved the police superintendent, the commissioner of the fire department and the doctor in charge of the board of health. The whole thing had been planned including flyers being printed in multiple languages just to notify the public. At the press conference, it was revealed that all the Tylenol in Chicago would be removed from shelves. The announcement caused a stir in the city and the mayor passed an ordinance that required all drugs sold in stores to have tamper-resistant packaging on October 4th. On October 5th, Johnson & Johnson recalled all their Tylenol products across the US. 31 million bottles of Tylenol were recalled, with a value of more than $100 million. A day later, an extortion letter arrived at Johnson & Johnson, demanding $1 million to stop the deaths. An in-depth investigation ensued. For days, the whole thing still confused everyone involved. 
Johnson and Johnson worked with investigators, sending in people that they had fired. They believed that maybe an ex-employee was upset with the company. Nobody had anything to do with the Tylenol, but some expressed that they wished that they had. The extortion letter was traced back to James Lewis from New York City. The investigation began to focus on him. Some believed he was just trying to extort money from Johnson & Johnson. Lewis was apprehended later and served 13 years of a 20-year sentence. On October 21st, lab tests managed to catch a bottle of Tylenol that had been laced. It had been sent from a Dominic's near the Walgreens that Paula Prince had visited. Four days later, the investigation force was reduced from 115 to 40 investigators. Eventually, the task force was disbanded and people believed that nothing more could be done. Public interest in the case was renewed in 2007 during the 25th anniversary of the deaths. Police opened the case again and searched through new tips and old evidence. In 2009, they went through James Lewis's old apartment and gained a DNA sample from him for analysis. The FBI even requested DNA samples from the Unabomber, Ted Kaczynski, but he denied any involvement with the Tylenol case. No new leads have been successful and the case has stagnated once more. The deaths caused by a batch of Tylenol that had been laced with cyanide changed the way that medicine is packaged in 1982, but nobody knows who tampered with the capsules. In my research, I found a couple of suspects, and there aren't any other theories to the mystery. During the investigation into the deaths, interviews were conducted into the ex-employees of Johnson & Johnson. Everyone denied their involvement but police said that one person stood out. Around the same time, Johnson & Johnson had some complaints about their talcum powder. People had been finding green bits in it, and it was found to be a type of mould that grows in damp oak. It was revealed that the company had oak pallets in their mines, which caused the mould. One of the ex-employees had been on that team, the police said that he was the type of person who could have lied to their face and they would have believed him. Of course, that in itself doesn't mean this man is guilty. However, the idea that it was even mentioned stands out to me. If he could have convincingly lied to the police, then he may have gotten away with the deaths of the victims. Unfortunately, there are no ties between this person and the crime meaning that we can't verify whether he was the culprit or not. James Lewis was a big suspect during the investigation. He sent a letter to Johnson & Johnson to intimidate them into sending him money. He was apprehended and went to prison. ABC7 managed to speak to him while he was in prison, and he said that an admission to extortion is not the same as being guilty of murder. 
He told them that the murderer was still on the streets. Many people believed that Lewis was the culprit and Lewis continued to refute those beliefs. ABC7 continued to try and contact Lewis after he was released from prison, all of which communications were unanswered. Some believe that if this had happened in recent years, the situation would have been resolved and the true culprit caught. Some people are still looking into Lewis as the culprit, trying to find anything they can to pin the deaths to him. The Unabomber's appearance in the later investigation is quite intriguing. For those who don't know, the Unabomber, Ted Kaczynski, killed three people and injured 23 others in a nationwide bombing campaign between 1978 and 1996 when he was apprehended. He targeted people that he believed were destroying the environment. We know that he set a bomb in the University of California on July 2nd, 1982. The next bomb wasn't until 1985, which means he could have easily gotten involved in the Tylenol situation. He did deny access to his DNA sample as well, which seems quite suspicious. However, he was known for attacking specific people and not a group of unknown members of the public. The Chicago Tylenol murders are unsolved, even 40 years after the deaths, and there are no leads left to follow. It's unlikely to be solved, but we are always reminded of the tragedy when we try and open those safety caps to access our medicines. The story from this episode came from a Crime Museum article on the Chicago Tylenol murders, a PBS article called How the Tylenol Murders of 1982 Changed the Way We Consume Medication, and a Chicago article about the Tylenol murders. The theories from this episode came from the Chicago article, the Crime Museum article, and an ABC7 article called Chicago Tylenol Murders, New Optimism for Charges 40 Years After Cyanide-Laced Painkiller Deaths. References for the episode and links to studies will be posted on social media for you to have a look at. Social media links are available using the link in the episode description. I'm on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter and still plan on posting short pieces of episodes to TikTok. I have a Patreon, but I'm still deciding what to post on it this season. There is a £3 tier if you want to support me anyway. The link to the Patreon is also on the link tree and, as before, you're welcome to pledge more than £3 a month and I'll find something extra special for the people that do. My email address is also in the episode description if you want to send me spooky stories, unexplained events or even mysteries you want me to look at. If I get enough, I'll set up some listener episodes to read them. Please don't hesitate to email me if you have any corrections or issues with things that I've said. Once I've seen the email, I'll make sure to correct myself. This week's Creature Feature will be out on Saturday and next week's episode will be out on Wednesday, November 23rd. So hold on until then. Thank you.